This is the Square Peg Podcast. Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destination the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and here are their stories. Globetrotting DJ producer Saeed Yunan, owner of his own record label, Yunan Music, is known worldwide for his house, tribal, and techno tracks, but he wasn't always a big fancy big shot. Cassette tapes, vinyl records, and residential basements were where he started his career. In the immediate future, there are lots of miles coming for his odometer in September 2022. Saeed, welcome to the Square Peg Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, man. It's, it seems like I haven't talked to you in a couple minutes, but um, it's probably been closer to 25 or 30 years. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a minute, all right. <laughs> it definitely has, and you know what? I'm glad we're able to do that real quick because I know we're you. You wanted to get this this done because you've got some big things coming up in the fall of 2022. You want to you know, tell us all about what you're doing? Um, yeah, I mean, well, actually, we were trying we were trying to do this earlier, but I was actually I was in planning Guatemala, then did, did Vegas, and then I was up in Toronto as well. <laughs> Next, I got coming up right after this. Uh, I do. I'm going down to Florida, so I'm doing West Palm Beach. For Lauderdale and Miami, and then from there I go to this thing called Group Cruise. It's uh, basically a party ship. It's like a cruise line that takes off in LA and then goes to Cabo, like five days on the water, comes back. It's it's like a full-on twenty-four hour party. So I'm DJing on that as well. How do you plan on staying awake for twenty-four hours? No, I'm just kidding. I know it's not going to be a twenty-four hour set. <laughs> we, you definitely got a lot of things going on. You know, while I've always and you know this. Uh, I've always considered my musical taste to be rather eclectic. Uh, you're going to have to work overtime to explain to me the differences uh, between the types of music that you create. Um, first, though, let's go back to the beginning. And I, I tend to do things. I have a real bad habit of being real chronological on this show. Um, but that's just kind of how I roll. Now, you came to the U.S. from Iraq only a few years before uh, uh, was Operation Desert Storm, um, really before America yeah, learned. Right before that was when America really learned the name Saddam Hussein, and we didn't really, none of us had ever really heard of him. Uh, What do you remember about living in Iraq for the, what, about your first 10, 12 years? Yeah, I mean, we actually came um, in 1982 during the Iraq and Iran War, so it was way before Desert Storm and all that. Um, So we basically fled the country during the war. Um, it was crazy. I mean, uh, you know, we're, you're in the middle of a war zone. We, you know, my dad, my father made a bunker, kind of makeshift bunker in the house. We're like around three o'clock when we get our air raid. We all, me and my sisters, everybody, we all have to get up and hop, you know, go to this little bunker area that he's created. And you just hear, you know, shelling, uh, guns and everything all around us. I mean, it, we became so used to it that we used to actually stand outside and just watch one plane go after the next and throw missiles at it and we're like cheering it was like a video game but it was like for real you know it's crazy that's amazing you said your dad built his own bunker underneath your house no no it was like it was part of the house it was like between the kitchen and the bathroom from what i remember we had like really solid concrete walls so it's like that's where we had to be in in order it's almost like what we do here for when a hurricane or something happens you got to find a good foundation area so the house doesn't collapse over you I got you. So you were actually pretty young, a little bit younger than I thought, so maybe eight or nine when you guys left. Um, you know, you know, you're a year older than I am, so we both remember the the days before you know digital music downloads and things like that. Um, did you guys have uh, Western music that you remember uh, available to you on 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 the radio there? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I mean, we had like terrestrial radio, so we had like, you know, analog dialers. Uh, I used to try to tune in and find like uh, European stations and just dial it up and have my cassette tape in the cassette player and hit record whenever I hear like what if it's ABBA or whatever, you know, whatever I can pick up on the on the on the on the station. But it was pretty it was pretty hard to get. But, you know, when you stay up late at night on the weekend and just tune in, you can find some good music. And and what was your real your first introduction to dance music? Uh, well, as you know, like in high school, I started out doing hip hop music. Uh, then from there, I slowly got into hip house. So hip house is basically a mixture of house music and hip hop. So it's like somebody rapping on top of how, a house beat. Or if people don't know what a house beat is, it's like think of it like a disco beat. So it's like rapping on a disco beat. And I kind of discovered that while, you know, probably the senior year of my high school and really got into it then. So I want to actually go back earlier. When you were tuning in and, and catching European radio stations when you were still living in Iraq, uh, what, what dance music? Did you hear any dance music? Or I mean, um, you mentioned ABBA, which I guess is kind of late 70s, yeah. early 80s-ish. Yeah, it was like a disco we kind of survived. So it was ABBA, you would hear... Um, I had the Tiger was playing back then, I believe. Um, so you had some rock and stuff as well. So, but it was very, very, and also like I was tuning into like Indian stations. It wasn't just predominantly European. So it was like Indian station and more like world beat type stuff, I guess. Okay. So how, how did you, did you guys come straight from Iraq to the U.S. or what was that process like? No, we, we left Iraq and we went to London for about a year to get our paperwork sorted out. And my dad, my dad has brothers in, in, um, in London, so we stayed with them, uh, stayed there for a while. And then, uh, yeah, we came here to the U.S. after that around, I think, 81, 82, we, we came to Virginia and we've been here. Okay. Um, so going back and, and, you know, like I remember when you first started DJing and you're doing parties and things like that, um, talk, talk a little bit about how you got started in that, what your equipment was like. Uh, I know it probably seems ancient now. Um, but what were you working with? Uh, probably a lot of cassettes. And um, just just chat me up a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, starting out DJing, and I don't know more. I don't know how far back your listeners go, but there obviously uh, there was Radio Shack back in our day. So Radio Shack had these turntables. They they're called realistic turntables. It's nothing nothing fancy. They're like bell drive turntables. You actually had to put a couple of pennies or a dime or, or nickels on it just so the needle doesn't skip around um and while you're trying to scratch up with so basically what I, what i did maybe around high school um instead of going to a couple of the classes me and a buddy of mine we used to skip school and go to his house and just mess around on his turntables and back then you know we were like scratching and and trying to do like maneuvers that, that we would see on tv like what sir mix a lot would be doing and stuff like that so we started collecting vinyl and collecting records. So we got two realistic turntables. They didn't have a DJ mixer back then, so we were relying on a microphone mixer. So basically, it's just like a two-channel mic mixer. It's a volume fader, so it wasn't even a regular you know, mixing fader. So we had two, two, two uh, belt-driven turntables on a microphone mixer hooked up to a tape player, and we would record what we're doing, and we kind of go back and listen and, and kind of fix things up as we go. You know, my first memories, actually, the first time I ever went to a nightclub, and you're going you're gonna to get a good chuckle out of this because you're going to remember it, you were spinning Monday nights at the fifth column, and <laughs> I'm going to tell you a funny something funny. I didn't know, because I'd never been to a club before, 
I thought that the de- when you were DJing that it was like listening to the radio, where you'd like you you would actually the music would literally stop in between songs, and you would hear the DJ talk. And I'm there like 15 minutes. I'm like, hey, I haven't heard the music stop at all. Anyway, that was my that was my first um, you know introduction. Was that the first club you ever DJed? Uh, no, I, you know, it's funny, man. I, I remember, I think I remember that when we all uh, went together in that time. Yeah. Um, that fifth column was not the first, um, it was the first biggest big club in DC that I've DJed. It was a club that I've always wanted to get into. And I, I said to myself, if I can play it fifth column, then that's, that's like, that, that's like the big deal. That was the big deal back then. So that was probably the biggest, the big club I played, but I did play smaller clubs before that. And if I remember correctly, the place right next door was called Babylon, right? No, it was called The Bank, then it became The Vault. Are you sure? I could have sworn yeah, that maybe it became Babylon later. I think I went there and once or twice. It was Babylon at one point, you're right. But I thought when, we, when it was the column, that used to be The Vault next door. That's right. Okay, so and I remember back in those days, you actually made me. I had never heard of techno before. And um, you made me a tape. I remember the only song I remember was there was a Sesame Street mix. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's when they were taking all these like um, all, you know some songs either if it's either like uh, cartoony stuff or things because you know if you think about it, back in the day in the nineties, rape scene was very all about being kind of comic, uh, kind of like a cartoony figure. You know, you're you're wearing big pants, you've got glow sticks, you're. It's very, it's very animated. So I think the music that we, they did with the techno was very animated as well. And that was really when raves were getting started, right? Yeah, yeah. Like when we were in, uh, in still in school, uh, raves started to become big, and they were like all super illegal. They were like all in warehouses, illegal warehouses. So a promoter would bring in a sound system, a couple of light rigs, and hire a couple of DJs. Most of the most of the raids just got raided by the end of the night, and you know we're running out with our records and bags, and we're running, you know, trying to make sure nobody takes our turntables or whatever. I, I read there was one I remember. There's that park right at the end of the landing, the runway at National Airport. Um, yeah, were, were right you underneath the bridge? Underneath the bridge, I probably went with you and Juan and, and a couple others. Yeah, that one got raided. I think, yeah, yeah, that's good that you remember that. Yeah, that one definitely got raided, and I think they were running everything off of a power generator, and it was one of my buddies' power generator, and they had to leave it there. He was really pissed off. I, I do. What I do remember is when the police coming and we were running, they were saying, why are you guys running? It's not a big deal. We're just going to tell you to leave. <laughs> I, I clearly remember that. I actually hadn't – boy, that, that memory just came to me. I hadn't thought about it in a long time. But I want to ask you, you know, what is your music made of – and how do the samples make each track different? Um, so basically, I make everything in the studio. I use a DAO. So I, I use Logic. I work with Logic. I use a lot of soft synths now. Um, I got rid of a lot of my uh, outboards. Like, I used to have a lot of synthesizers or whatnot, but I just I can do everything within the box. So basically, I run everything in my Mac plugins with Logic. Um, I've got a uh, what do you call it? A vocal booth in the house. Basically, my house, the basement is a studio. So I've got a vocal booth, I've got a studio, and the other half of the basement is where I run the record label. I also own a record label. So <clears throat> I've got those things. Um, in regards to samples, I've got a huge, huge collection of records. And I'm talking like we go way back to like 1986, Houdini, Run DMC stuff. I, I still have all those records. So I take a lot of that stuff and I just like needle drop in here in, the, in my studio and just listen to bits and pieces. If I like it, I sample it. I speed it up, chop it up, slow it down, reverse it, 
do a lot of crazy stuff and and so I come up with something that that's uniquely my own instead of ripping somebody's exactly identity you know i don't I don't like taking anybody's work as it is I'll, I'll take something I'll chop it up I'll rearrange it I'll you know tweak it put some plugins on it and make it my own so that's basically what I do here in the studio and that's how I create a lot of the tracks so if you're creating tracks and you're using these samples on something that you're going to sell what what are the copyright laws I mean how does how does that all work um, I mean, you remember the story of the you know ice ice baby with vanilla ice sampling right, yeah, yeah. so if you're blamed like that sampling it even though his was a note off and he actually won the case um, if you can you can sample as long as you do like I said you, you're taking something and you're making it uniquely yours. So I can take like let's say Adonis Summer, I feel love riff the ding 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 ding, and I maybe reverse it or maybe chop it in the middle and and change the notes. That becomes uniquely my own. So that's that doesn't affect the copyright situation. What affects the copyright situation if I take it exactly what it is and I chop left and right, grab it and put it into my track as is. That's that's a copyright issue right there. Okay. All right. I, I now I understand that. So we talked about you. Uh, your first big club gig in D.C. was at the Fifth Column on Monday nights. When did you actually start traveling outside of the D.C. area uh, for clubs for club gigs? Uh, man. Uh, so base in around nineteen ninety six, ninety seven. I worked uh, for America Online. Well, actually, Juan got me the job to work at America Online with him back in like ninety six, ninety seven. And back then, I was already DJing. I was DJing locally. I was in Fifth Column, playing tracks. But I started getting gigs outside of the country. I first, you know, I started making music on the side. Like after I leave AOL, I'll go home and make music. Music got released, and I started getting books and booked in places like Germany, Spain, Canada. And it was really hard for me to keep my day job and do the touring. So. The touring kind of caught up with me, and my boss found out that I'm calling in sick because I'm always on the road and I can't make Mondays for work because I'm coming from another country. So they gave me an ultimatum in 1998. They're like, look, it's either this job or that, and you, you got to figure out what you want to do. And I figured by then, you know, I'm, I'm pretty secure to leave a, a secure job for this, you know, what was a hobby now, you know, became like a full-time thing. And so 1998 is pretty much when I started doing this full time, and I haven't looked back since. So 1998 was my last, like, 95 job. Well, so I'm glad you brought that up because, I, you know, I wanted to ask when it is that you got, you know, you started literally making a living at this. You said you were working for AOL, though? Yeah, I was working for AOL first. What were you doing? What were you doing for them? I worked for the marketing department. Oh, wow. I, okay, so good. I didn't know this. I'm glad we got to talk about that. Now, you, of course, as you talked about, your first gigs outside of the D.C. area were actually international, uh, and you play worldwide. Can we assume uh, that to some degree the demographic who listen to their music are rather homogenous? Uh, is it the same around the globe? or you know, how does it, how do you, who, who listens to your music, and, and does it vary by, by, by geography? Um, it's pretty much, I think it's pretty global. I mean, dance music is super universal now. It's just like hip hop is. So anywhere you go, you've got, you know, your young kids and you've got your really old, like I played in Canada not too long ago, uh, for, and there was a lady that's like, I think she's late sixties or early seventies and she's on the dance floor from beginning to end. Like, and this is like an after hours club. So I didn't stop till like eight o'clock in the morning. And she was on the dance floor coming up to me afterward, thanking me. And so you've got people like that. And you also got the younger generation, which can't necessarily go to the club. 
but they're also on my like Patreon or on my Instagram and I'm giving them sample packs and things like that because they, they can't really come to the club. So it crosses all age uh, demographic. I, I think it just, it's dance music and it's just like universal. Do you think that the people who are into dance music and go go to your gigs, do they? Do you think they also you you might also see them at a rock show or at a country show, or are they or are they pretty much kind of concentrate on 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 the kind of stuff you do? Um, I mean, I, I I know you probably know like Coachella and other big festivals are now incorporating a dance tent or a, you know electronic music tent in their in their um, uh, arenas or whatnot. So dance music and rock music or alternative music, it is kind of coming together. I mean, you've got DJs who actually do incorporate some of that music in their sets as well. They'll basically, if they have a dance track in the middle of a breakdown, they'll put like a Guns N' Roses riff in it and then create a crescendo kind of a buildup with it and boom, go back right into the dance track. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do and, and it, it actually speaks for all, all ages. It speaks for all, you know, all races, whatever. And it kind of brings people together. And I think that's why uh, dance music is, is so unifying because it, it doesn't matter who, where you are, how old you are, or where you came from. It, it kind of gravitates toward everybody because you're using elements from all different walks of life. Like I was telling you earlier, I was listening to World Beat on the radio a lot of dance music incorporates a lot of uh, drums, percussions from uh, Latin America, from Middle East, from Asia. It also you can you hear guitar riffs, uh, you know, from different genres of music. So it's it's a mashup of everything. So it's not just a, what people may think. It's just a kick and a hi hat. That's like the basic, which a lot of music has a basis. You know, like reggae has a bass, reggaeton has a bass, dance music has a bass as well. But everything on top of that bass is what really matters. Okay, well, does does do you think the does the location of the city or country or where you're playing does that affect your set list? Um, not necessarily because the people who come out to hear me they necessarily know who I am uh, because, like I said, I'm not just a DJ; I'm an artist. So I have I have music release. I was I had a track that was number one on Billboard Dance. Um, so I'm I'm not just a DJ; I'm actually a music artist. I produce. I I release music on other labels. So when these people pay a ticket to come hear me play, they're not just hearing a, any you know wedding DJ. It's just that they're coming to. They know whether I'm going to be playing a lot of these sets that I play. It's a lot of my own music. So think of it almost like a, a band performing, not a cover band, but a real band performing their own music. That's what DJs do nowadays. They I'm out there playing my own tracks when I'm DJing, along with other things that I've created as well. Now, what do you, if you had, if you had to say, what do you, what would you consider um, a good, a good, good mix, a good set list? Uh, like what? I, I'm, I don't know. I'm not understanding what you mean. Well, do you? Let me ask it a different way. Um, is there? Are there different? Do you play something faster, slower, harder, softer at a different part of the? Um, oh, okay. Um, yeah, for example, a, a festival like, uh, let's say, Ultra Music Festival in Miami, which um, which I'll, if I like when I played a couple of years ago, it was like at least 20,000 people. Yeah, you can't play Mellow House. You're going to have to like go, you know, balls to the wall, like techno, like 130 BPM, just rock it out, you know, create that crescendo, create that energy. But then if I'm playing a smaller venue, say like, something like a small intimate vibe you're going to play a bit more 
chill, more housey, or let's say if it's a pool party, you don't want to play techno at a pool party, especially if it's a day pool party. You want to play something more vibey, get the ladies dancing, get the guys dancing, more sexier vibe, sexy house, kind of more, um, you know, percussion-fueled Latin vibe kind of house. So you do kind of change it up, but it's still within my realm of what I normally would play. And and do you uh, rehearse? I mean, do you rehearse a set list before you before you go out? Um, I don't rehearse upset. What I do is I create my own edits in the studio. So I'll create what I saw in area, like with the whole Guns N' Roses uh, example. I'll create something in the studio. I'm like, oh, people are going to love this if they're going to hear it. I can't necessarily release it because, again, copyright issue, but I can definitely play it. So I might make something in the studio which will break down to something they might recognize. Like you mentioned earlier, the Sesame Street song. Like, I'm, you know, that was, then, but that was back then. But imagine, like, I'll take something now. Let's say I'm playing in Miami. Maybe I'll sample the Miami Vice theme song from the bit in the middle of the track and then do something crazy with it and create a build up with that it, you, you have fun with the cities that you're playing at to kind of give them you know yeah it's shit he's playing the miami vice track you know <laughs> okay that makes sense and that kind of goes you, you kind of touched on something i had asked about a few minutes ago now going back and i know we could do we could do an entire podcast series uh on the evolution of how we consume music but talk to me a little bit about going you know from cassettes to vinyl to digital and i guess now to some extent going back to vinyl um, you know, I, you know, you and I both spent many weekend hours looking through the stacks at Tower Records and Pike Seven Plaza, and that's that's of all of the things that you know when we have what I call it old guy talking. Um, when I talk to the young, we talk about things that you know we had back when we were kids that they don't have now. The one thing I think that that kids are missing out on music wise is going to a, a record store and spending hours and hours and hours there. But t- I, I want to go back. Talk talk about going from from cassettes to CDs to vinyl to digital, and then, like I said, I, my understanding is now vinyl's kind of making a comeback. Yeah, well, vinyl's making a comeback in a, in a unique way, where not so much for DJing, but for collectors. Everybody wants to collect, like, the records I have now, <clears throat> I'll go online and I'll look at what they're worth on eBay, and it's crazy the amount of money people want for some of the records I have, but uh, it's more of a collector thing. I mean, DJs still buy vinyl. I still, like, if I go to Japan, like I, I recently played in Japan, I definitely visit a record store and, and go through their record bins and still buy records still this day, so I still do that, but with its cassette tapes was definitely a something hard to mix with cassette tapes were just not made to mix, but some people did try to do that. Um, I think CDs was a bit easy. I mean, obviously we had vinyl. So, you know, hip hop guys were doing the vinyl, the scratching Then you had like back to back with vinyl. So what you would do is set up four turntables and two DJs will get up and they'll DJ and they'll do like almost like a DJ battle. So one DJ will do one thing. Then the next DJ try to either mimic it or do it better. And, or, or, you know, I'll do the other guys. So there was that kind of thing going on. <clears throat> after DJ, you know, after DJing with vinyl, CDs came in with the CDJs. Uh, basically, you, you, if anybody hasn't seen what a CDJ looks like, it, think of it just like a turntable, but with a disc on top. So whatever you do to that disc uh, mimics what happens to the CD inside the CDJ. So you can actually scratch with the CD. You can reverse it really fast like you would a record where you grab it and just go, Brrr. you can do that with the CD. So that was that was the next level. Now we're all into digital. So it's still you can show up to the club. Basically, when I'm getting booked now, all I have to show up with is a USB stick and my headphones. Before I had to carry bags and bags of records. After that, I had to carry bags and bags of CDs. Now, literally, just one good USB stick with like 128 gigabytes. Slap it into the 
to the, they still call them CDJs, but they don't play CDs anymore. You stick your USB in and you see your entire playlist and you select playlists and you can loop, scratch, um, even, you can even literally remix on the fly. So I can take two tracks as I'm playing them. I chop them on the fly as I'm DJing and do different things and, and take a acapella from one layer on the other track. So you can, you're literally, your your DJ booth can literally become a studio. So you can remix on the fly. You can uh, manipulate the tracks with the audience and just have a have a good time. That's that's really amazing. And to to some extent, you're speaking a language I don't understand, but I think I get what you're talking about. Now, of course, we consume music so much differently, you know, now than we did 30 years ago. Um, I mean, Pandora, Spotify, Apple Music, iHeartRadio. Um, I know those have been very beneficial i listen to a lot of music that's not commercial uh that's never gotten a lot of radio play i like i listen to a lot of blues i listen to everything but i listen to a lot of blues i like a lot of singer songwriter stuff Uh, i've really gotten into um kind of the texas country slash uh you know americana folky kind of stuff and what i know is that i have actually discovered some of my favorite artists now are artists i discovered because i created a pandora station for an artist that i liked or because I heard them by accident, and I, they're not artists I would have heard about on terrestrial radio. Um, would you say that as popular as your music is, it's not necessarily the type of stuff that you might hear on terrestrial radio? Do you feel like the way we consume music now has been really beneficial for you, uh, getting your music out there and getting people to listen to it and, and having the success you've had? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I'm considered an underground DJ, meaning exactly what you said. I play underground music, music that doesn't necessarily, uh, you hear on radio and it's a lot of it is just like club music. But it is cool because exactly what you just told me about how you discover other artists. A lot of people sound, they come to me saying the same thing. They're like, yo, I was following this person and you're, you're, uh, set list showed up or your profile showed up. I never heard of you. I mean, I get, these messages almost on a daily of people like I just discovered you. I didn't know, you know, and they, they'll look at my band camp or, or whatever. And then just look at the music. Like, yeah, you were suggested to me. I love the music you make. So I think, you know, the, the technology is a double edged sword, I guess you can say. I mean, it's great for people discovering new artists, new music uh, with, you know, platforms like Pandora or Spotify. But it's also these platforms pay next to nothing to artists like myself or even bigger artists, to be honest with you. It's just like it's great for discovery. Yeah, we're gaining a lot of fans. I have more fans than I ever had in my entire career. But the money does not match the fans that you're getting. And because these platforms, it's just, it's just hard. And I, I'm just hoping that sooner or later some kind of a law will pass where the artists are getting, you know, their fair share of the music that's being played out there. I mean, I can get my music streamed thousands of times, and I'll see a couple of pennies out of it. It just doesn't make sense. But, again, you are gaining a lot of fans, so hopefully something better happens down the road. I've heard, you know, I've heard something like literally pennies per stream, uh, 10 cents per stream. Is Am I on the right track? Like thousands thousand streams uh, less than a penny for thousands of streams oh wow okay i didn't realize yeah. it was that bad so i guess yeah. it, it's safe is it now is it different because uh, i listen to I, I get my music primarily when i'm at work at my desk i have pandora going on my phone i i stream apple music and i make all my playlists and download all my artists there is is 
are Spotify and Apple Music different than Pandora when it comes to that stuff and how much you're compensated? Um, I, I like Pandora for, I like comedy on Pandora. I think the way they sort comedy, I, I enjoy that. I, I like the way they pick that. I think with Spotify, for me, musically, it's probably their algorithm is pretty I think it's pretty good compared to the others because, like, for example, I'll go see if I put my name in and I'll see what they suggest. And they pretty spot on on booking the artists that actually sound like me. So I know they do that. Uh, Pandora is, is pretty good, too. Uh, but like I said, I use them mainly for to listen to, like, comedy stations. Uh, I haven't used Apple Music that much, to be honest with you. I've just been... We have so many apps as a DJ. I've got TrackSource, Beatport, like all these other ones you probably haven't heard of that I have to kind of maintain because uh, that's where the DJs go. <laughs> right. Now, I actually have heard, The only reason I've heard of Beatport is, is from following you. Um, now, how would you say that the return, albeit limited, uh, of vinyl and record stores, uh, if, if at all, how has it affected uh, how you make and market your mixes? Uh, well... With records, I mean, digital down, the great thing about digital, there's no overhead. Like, there, you don't, when we were releasing vinyl records, we used to get boxes and boxes back of records that weren't sold from distribution. With digital download, you don't get that. Again, the money's not the same, but then again, it's not as much work. For when we were releasing a record, you had to get the acetate mastered. You had to do the cover art. You had to do the um, the what is it called the label copy. You have to make sure the test pressing comes out correctly. Then you got to go test it, and if it sounds bad, you got to repress it. You, all those parts are skipped when you're releasing a digital album because a digital album you just got to master it right, and that's it. And obviously, you hire a graphic designer to do your graphic work. It's so much simpler, less money, so much simpler, but. Uh, like I, it's like a you know it's a double-edged sword it's, it's really hard to compare but i i know the digital age really kind of threw what we do in a loop and uh it kind of still is but i think we're slowly hopefully coming out of it and uh you know people will appreciate the music at the end of the day instead of just digesting really sh you know not that great mp3s or compressed files when we're spending hours and hours in the studio to make the music sound so good we want to make every hi-hat, every snare, every kick, every bass uh, note that sounds crystal, crystal clear. But then at the end of the day, people are just listening to, them, to, to it on their iPhone. And all they're getting is, you know, super, super compressed files. That, that, that to me is just like, it kills me. <laughs> you know, it's funny. You just made me think of a couple of things. When you talk about all the effort that you put into making, uh, you know, have recording in quality, but then somebody's playing it on their, their iPhone. I just actually maybe six months ago bought my first pair. The first time I spent more than 20 bucks on a set of headphones. Um, and I bought some, I think they're JBL. They were 150 bucks, but I got them for 100. And the quality is un-effing believable. I mean, I can't believe what I was missing out on all these years. But, you know, another thing that you brought up that I actually don't have in my notes, but I've thought of before, um, you know, I'm I'm honestly a little bit surprised that because of the way we consume music, because everything is is on digital downloads, I'm kind of surprised that a lot of artists still make and I'm holding air quotes an album. Why they're recording and releasing, you know, nine, ten, a dozen songs at a time? Um, it, can you talk about that? Like it just kind of surprised me. You could literally record one song and release it, and you don't have to make a whole CD or you don't have to press a whole you know vinyl album or or, or make a whole cassette. I mean, any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, it's, an album has taken a 
totally different turn nowadays. An album is a vehicle for an artist to go on tour because that's where we make money at the end of the day. It's not by selling the album. The album is nothing. The album is mainly a promo machine in order for you to hit the road and make the real money on the road. So the reason a lot of artists, including myself, release an album is so we can create a tour and we're touring for that album. And on top of that, after we release an album, we'll start dropping singles from the album with remixes done by other artists that we like. So like, for example, if I have an album of 10 tracks, I'd say I pick a track and I give it to this other artist, say, I'll give you this much, can you do a remix? And they'll do it and I'll put it out as a single with that remix and that generates more income, that generates more uh, hype for the album. But mainly, to be honest with you, an album nowadays is just a vehicle to go on the road to tour. You know, I, um, I'm really interested to hear about how one starts his own record label. Uh, I mean, the, the business part of it, the legal part of it, the, the, the incorporator, how does that all work? Tell me how long is your, what, and what's the name of your, it's Union Music is the name of your label. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've had, I've had both. I've had a vinyl, I've had a vinyl label and a digital label and the digital label is so much easier than running a, an actual physical vinyl label. I had a vinyl label from 1998 to 2004 called Addictive Records. At 2004, when Napster went live and started, everybody started ripping music, we had to close the label down, just wasn't making money. <clears throat> My name, Yunnan, was already incorporated, so I just added music to it, so it like, became Yunnan Music, and that, that's the name of the label. But it's pretty simple. I mean, I already had, you know, the... Um, everything in order because I already knew the people I, I was already, I had a lawyer I'm working now with universal distribution. So my label gets the, you know, really great distribution across the globe. Uh, it's, it's just a matter of hooking up with the right distributor, having the right artists on the label and having a good team. Like I've got a label manager, I've got a PR a publicist, I've got somebody that handles the marketing, but a lot of this is literally a labor a label of uh, labor of love because at the end of the day, you're not going to see a lot of money, but I love releasing music from artists who nobody knows, and they just need an avenue to kind of put out stuff, kind of like what I had to do in the beginning when I first started out. So basically, it's just a, a roadmap for them to kind of get their name out there. Uh, you know, you, you're producing other artists. How do you come in contact with these artists, and how do you guys work? It out? Do you guys do in-person stuff, or can it all be done remotely? Uh, most of it remotely. The stuff I sign for my label, I have like a um, uh, an email where people send demos. So it, it works just like any regular record label back in the day. So artists will send a demo. If I like their demo, I'll test it. I'll tell them to send me an actual like high-res file. I'll test it out in my gigs. If the crowd goes crazy, they love it and it sounds good, then I come back and I'll say, look, I want to sign this. We got a contract going. We create a contract. We release the track and on my label, United Music, and then that's how it goes. Uh, but we also, you know, work with other artists remotely. So, like, we can open up our computers and we can sync each other's computers and we can work on music together. We can do collaborations that way as well. But mainly for the label is a lot of artists. I just listen to their demos and I sign them just like you know uh, any label would. Did you uh, did the how did the pandemic affect your your ability to to tour and, and kind of make your living? Yeah, that was uh, super difficult for everybody. I mean, we I had to create you know think of creative ways to kind of stay afloat. So I created online courses on how to produce. I created a Patreon account to uh, give people like a special track edits that I've done that I can't really release, but they can play it out. Uh, basically, just doing stuff like that. I you have to kind of think outside the box. So basically 
teaching people how to produce uh, online and showing them videos of my tricks of how I do certain things in the studio. And that kind of pretty much kept me afloat. And obviously releasing stuff on the label, we released a lot more stuff. You know, um, you still have, you know, when I called you, obviously you still have uh, a Washington DC area code. Are you still in the DC area? Yeah, I'm still uh, in the DC area. And and have you bought a house? Do you, do you own a house? Yeah, I have a house. Uh, my studio's in the house. Well, you know what? The, then you and I both know what real estate is like uh, in the Washington D.C. area. Um, so to to say that you know you're doing well, I, I guess would be an understatement. Because if you're able to buy a house in the D.C. area, I think you're probably doing pretty well. Do you ever stop and just think, how in the world did I get to a point where I'm making a living doing this? Did you ever think that? Did you ever dream that you would be able to make a living and be able to be successful enough that 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 you you own a house in Washington in the Washington D.C. area? Yeah, no, I mean, the day I quit AOL in 1998, I was scared out of my mind, and my parents were really furious. I mean, I'm leaving a secure job with, you know, really good, you know, pay and everything to something that was super uncertain, but I just, in my, I had it in my gut, I felt, it. I was like, look, this, it, this is, something's right, I'm already on the road, I'm already gigging, people are loving what I'm releasing, It's got, it's got to work, so I just kind of went with my gut man and ever since i was just like i always go with my gut instinct with everything and i never thought i was gonna you know what is this like it's been over 20 years now doing this full time i never thought i'd be not not just the house but other things as well like uh, and be having a record label having over 150 artists signed to my record label i have an agent i have a manager i have a publisher it's like it's crazy to think about it and i still i'm still on the road i'm still touring i have you know, it, it, it's like it's beyond. Yeah, I, I can't believe it. To be honest with you, it's weird. <laughs> you know, it's so funny that I hadn't really thought about this when you talked about your parents' reaction. And I don't want to stereotype too much, but you know, there's that. You know, there's that feeling and the kind of idea that people have about the the immigrant work ethic and thing like that. And I can only imagine your you know your parents doing everything they had to do to to get you guys here to the United States, and and then you go ahead and you leave a. Uh, a stable job like that uh, at AOL to go to go you know doing what you're doing with a very uncertain future but I'm sure they're proud of you now oh yeah yeah my my both of my friends they, all they wear is my label shirt all the time they're super proud and every magazine or whatever interview I get my dad hangs it up on the wall he has like a shrine in one of our rooms and he, he has all my flyers all my uh, magazine cutouts, all my CD covers, everything. You know, I just I just thought of something, and I'm t- I could be totally wrong, but didn't one of our friends from high school buy your parents' house? No, that was Juan's house. Uh, Cave bought it, and he bought the house. But Juan, Juan used to live across the street from my parents, and he sold his house. Okay, I remember that because I, I ran into him a few years ago uh, when I was home visiting my folks. And I remember he lived, it was on the corner there of Woodford Road and whatever the other street was. But I, I remember us talking about that. I guess I got it wrong. But um, we're kind of wrap up here pretty soon. But what kind of artists do you listen to that are outside of your genre? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I definitely don't listen to dance music all the time. I, you know, between the studio, listening to demos and being in the club, I, I need my ears to kind of chill out. So, when I'm home or when I'm driving, I, I listen to a lot of, like, dub reggae. I listen to, like, old school King Tubby or Lee Scratch Perry. I like, um, what else do I like? Uh, um, uh, just, like, really chill stuff as well. I, I like kind of uh, acid jazz, kind of trip-hop stuff. 
stuff stuff with not too many vocals. I like just music, just generally music and um and uh yeah, just more like mellow chill out stuff. Yeah, what do you listen to any podcasts? Um I do. I listen what do I listen to? I listened to this one called the uh, the Manly Show or something. It's pretty cool. It talks about different things in life. I listen to Joe Rogan's uh, podcast. Obviously, who doesn't nowadays? Um, and uh, what else do I listen to? Uh, I think Neil deGrasse Tyson. I listen to his. I like the stuff he talks about astrophysics and everything. Would you? I, I just kind of had this thought too. I'm thinking of everything on the fly here today. I would imagine that there are probably some some DJ podcasts where people talk about DJing and producing. Oh yeah, no. Well, those I don't do uh, DJ podcast. I actually I have a thing that I watch online, which is it's like this thing called Amsterdam Dance Event. It's like videos they put out. Um, as far as DJing goes, I don't do too many podcasts with it. Like I said, it's just like I like to learn things from. I watch a lot of hip hop stuff to see what hip hop guys are doing, like Jay Z or Dr. Dre and things like that. That's what I enjoy more. Well, you know, maybe one day you'll start your own DJ podcast. Yeah, who knows? We'll see. Because <laughs> you don't have enough going on. Saeed, I'm going to wrap up here real quick, but before we go, um, I've got to give a real special shout-out. Um, I, I kind of went into a little bit of uncharted territory here. I mean, I can always I can always geek out. I'm, I'm a big music fan, and I love talking about the music industry and how we consume it and how it's changed. But, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff you talked about today is, is kind of foreign to me. With uh, You know, I, I enjoy the stuff you play, but it's it's not something I listen to real often. Um, I, I'm going to give a special shout out to my nephew Victor for his help uh, with some of my questions and some of the content we went over today. Um, and if you don't mind, go ahead and check out his uh, Chill Synth tracks under his artist name, which is November, uh, spelled N O V M B R. Um, missing two of the, the vowels at the end of the word at the end of the uh, word, but that's November, and he's on all the different streaming platform, platforms, and uh, he's also on Instagram. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed uh, my conversation with my. A very old friend, my high school friend, Saeed Union, and uh, I'm, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did because I had a good time. I haven't talked to Saeed in probably 30 years, uh, maybe not quite that long, but um, you know, I'm always happy, and I think we're all happy to see people we know doing well. So, Saeed Union, uh, hey, do you want to give us, where can people find your music? Um, you plug your label, plug your whatever you want to do before we go. Yeah, Union uh, Music is uh, is online. It's available on all platforms. Um, you can uh, catch. I'm on YouTube, Said Union TV. Uh, you can also uh, uh, Spotify, Pandora, uh, Instagram. It's all. If you just put in my full name, S A E E D Y O U N A N. Uh, Google that and all the social media and stuff will come up. Uh, I'm on Facebook as well, Twitter, all that good stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, we've been talking to Saeed Union of Union Music. Uh, he is a world-renowned DJ and producer. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We are right in the thick of getting into the thick of uh, Season 5 here on the Square Peg Podcast. Uh, make sure you tune in every Tuesday during the season. We will have a new episode in the fall of 2022. We'll see you next time. The Square Peg Podcast. Proudly produced by LasCruzesToday.com and Bravo Mike Communications. And now, here's a message from one of the sponsors who make this program possible. La Pignon is the only full-service sexual assault and child abuse response agency in southern New Mexico. Located in Las Cruces and serving Doñana, Hidalgo, Sierra, and Luna counties. All services are bilingual, bicultural, and all free. La Pignon offers a 24-hour crisis hotline, connection to community resources, counseling services, medical services, victim compensation, prevention education, and their Kid Talk Warm Line for kids 17 and under. 
La Pinon's mission is to provide comprehensive services related to prevention, intervention of assault and abuse to individuals, families, and the community. Sexual assault affects one in four females and one in six males by the age of 18, so it is important we start by believing and educate our communities on how to help. As a community, we must encourage people to report child abuse, and even if you just suspect it, you can report it to local law enforcement or the Children, Youth, and Families Department. We must have the conversations about importance of consent, yes means yes, and everything else means no. Remember, it starts with us and we all play a role in preventing violence in our communities. La Pinon can be reached at 575-526-3437 or visit them online at lapinon.org. You can also find them on social media at La Pinon SARS on Instagram and Twitter and La Pinon SARS on Facebook.